When I played basketball when I was in junior high and high school, I didn't know much about the game before I began playing, but I quickly picked up the rules. One of the first things that I learned was who the most important person on the floor was. And it wasn't either the point guards, it wasn't either the head coaches, it wasn't even me, but it was in fact the referees. Now the referee is someone who is separate from the teams and he allows disputes to be resolved peaceably. He applies the rules of the game to what happens on the floor. Now without a referee, the game would dissolve into chaos. Disputes could never be resolved, fights could break out. And that gives us a slice of a picture of what a mediator is. A mediator is someone who resolves disputes between two parties. He goes between them and uh, mediates. Now, scripturally, mediators are very prominent, and they're even more important for us with respect to God than they are for two teams. Think about it. Two teams are antagonistic. They have competing goals and objectives. But the scripture says that not only are we antagonistic to God, but we are at war with him. And so, not only that, but also two teams, all the players are equals. They're all human. But God is an omnipotent creator. We are fallen and depraved men, creatures, nothing like the creator. So if a mediator is needed in a simple game between several humans, how much more is one needed between us and God? Human metaphors fail in describing the absolute separation that exists between fallen men and God. And so although the text that we will be focusing our attention this morning on is in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, I would like you to turn with me first to Job chapter 9 in order to understand this concept of a mediator biblically. The ninth chapter of the book of Job. Now, the book of Job is very likely the first book of the Bible to be written, so it has an important place in introducing the rest of the Scriptures. You all remember what happens in Job. Job was allowed, by, allowed to be tormented by Satan, by God, and Satan then attacked Job, and Job lost all of his family, all of his possessions. He's covered in miserable sores. The main part of the book of Job are the speeches between Job and his three friends, where Job and his friends dispute about why it is that this has happened to him. And then finally, God comes in and settles the matter. Now, in Job chapter 9, Job addresses one important aspect of fallen man's relationship with God, because the book of Job is not just about human suffering or why bad things happen to good people but it discusses the whole of man's relationship with God in the fallen world. So in Job chapter 9, Job addresses the utter unapproachability of God, his complete separateness from and transcendence above his creation. In verse 1, Job asks, How can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise and hard and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He continues to show the greatness of God. Then in verse 19, he asks, he declares rather, if it is a contest of strength, behold, 
He is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon Him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, He would prove me perverse. Job is saying that God is so much greater than he is, so much higher than he is, that even if we were absolutely sinless, which is of course impossible, he would still have no right to demand justice from God, let alone expect mercy from him. Then finally in Job 9, 32 and 33, For he is not a man, as I am, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Job here places his finger on the heart of the issue. There is no arbiter, no mediator, no one to intercede between God and man. And we certainly have no one to make atonement for sins and satisfy the wrath of God against us. There is no one who can represent man before God, and this seems to be an insurmountable problem for Job. Fast forward through the rest of the Old Testament, and we see that God did set up a system of mediation in the form of the Aaronic priests those priests who descended from Aaron, Moses' brother. They were to act for men in relation to God and came near to anyone else to intercede for the people. But this system was weak and imperfect. Sacrifices needed to be offered continually, and God's righteous wrath was never satisfied, only placated. When we come to the New Testament, we are told of a new mediator, Jesus, who offered himself to completely drown the wrath of God against sinners and completely replaces the old priesthood. The book of Hebrews is the most complete New Testament argument for that priesthood and for the replacement of the old priesthood. This epistle is the answer to Job's question. It was written to Jews who had believed outwardly, but they were in danger of falling away back into their previous Judaism. So turn with me now to Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Now by the time we come to chapter 4, verse 14, the writer has already demonstrated the superiority of Jesus to angels, to Moses, and to Joshua. And here he's about to enter into the heart of the argument of the epistle, the superiority of Jesus and his covenant to the high priests and their covenant. But before he begins, he begins four motives to make use of and respond to Jesus as high priest in a powerful double appeal, which is what we have in verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We see here four persuasive motives to draw near to God through the preeminence of our high priest. But before we understand why we are to do something, we need to know what we are to do. So what is this holding fast? To hold fast means to use strength to retain, and it requires an exertion of energy. It is in the present tense, which means that it's a continual duty. We must always be expending energy to retain and hold fast to our confession. 
Now, our confession is what we say about Christ. It is our public testimony about Him. And it consists of both our testimony with our words and our testimony with our actions. Our testimony with our words is simply what we say about Christ. For the Hebrews, this meant acknowledging Christ as their sole mediator and no longer holding to the Aaronic priests as mediators. For us, it means that we never waver in our commitment to Christ and become timid in proclaiming Him as Lord and as the only means by which anyone can come to God. But our confession must also be visible through our actions. If we deny our confession by what we do, we're not doing what we're saying. We are denying what we say by what we do, and so to truly hold fast to our confession, we our lives must walk in accordance with that confession. In a word, this means that we never waver from our allegiance to Christ and the gospel, and we stay true to Him by our actions and by our words. Our second duty is in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. This confidence is not a glib frivolity whereby we come waltzing into God's presence with no regard for His person. Rather, it is a settled conviction whereby we know that God will accept us. And He will accept us not because of anything that we have done, but because of Christ's mediation on our behalf. This meaning is made clear in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have confidence by the blood of Jesus and we draw near because we have a great high priest. There can be no expectation of grace from God's throne for unbelievers or insincere hypocrites. The throne that we approach is God's throne. There is no confidence before it without Christ's righteousness. For all who is outside of Christ, God's throne is indeed majestic and awesome. But in it, there is nothing of grace, only the certain prospect of judgment when God will one day pour out His wrath on all who disbelieve. All who presume to approach God without Christ's righteousness and trusting in their own righteousness will be consumed. But to us at the throne of grace, we who are in Christ can know that we will receive mercy from God. We still reverence God, and we by no means come flippantly before Him, but there's no craven fear. There's no unholy terror in us. We trust in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and we hold fast because we have faith that His righteousness is applied to us. So we are drawing near with confidence and we are drawing near to God's throne. What exactly is drawing near? Fundamentally, it is worshiping God through the means that He has appointed. It is using the ways that He has established to come to Him and be reconciled to Him. Chapter 10, verse 1 says of the law that it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Those who draw near are the worshipers. In that case, those who sought God under the form that He had established at that time in history. 
This includes all of the means of grace that God has established for the church age. The preaching of the word, baptism and communion, prayer, and the local church. But it includes especially approaching God with prayer and petition, asking God for mercy and grace. This is our prayer to God, that we will receive mercy and grace. And notice again that it is a continual duty. We are always to be approaching His throne with spiritual petitions, both for us and for others. Thus, to draw near with confidence is to continually use the ways that God has appointed to follow and obey Him. Thus, to draw near with confidence is to use those ways. And we should always be holding fast to our confession in word and in deed, drawing near to God through the word, ordinances, prayer, and prayer, in all having the confidence that is grounded on Christ's work. But why are we to do this? How can we, who are wretched sinners, have any confidence whatsoever before a holy God? It is to answer these questions that the author proposes four motives based on the preeminency of Christ's priesthood to hold fast to our confession and draw near to the throne of grace. The first motive that our writer gives us to hold fast to our confession is in verse 13. And that is that our high priest has served in the supreme tabernacle. He has entered the heavenly holy place, and there he has served as our high priest. So in verse 14, the beginning of it, Since then we have a great priest who has passed through the heavens. A priest is a mediator between God and man, and a high priest is the chief mediator. The first Aaronic high priest was Aaron, and he was followed in the office by his sons. The high priest had many duties to perform, but the chief duty of the high priest and the nearest that he came to God was each year on the Day of Atonement. In this annual sacrifice for sins, the high priest would pass through the outer tabernacle that all the Israelites had access to. He would pass through the holy place that only the priests could enter. And then he would enter the most holy place that only he could come to, and that once a year. And there he would make atonement for sins. This is the imagery that's being used here. See, the Jews thought of the heavens as divided into three sections. The first heaven is the atmosphere, where the birds are. The second heaven is outer space, where the sun, moon, and stars are. The third heaven is the special dwelling place of God, what we normally think of when we think of heaven. And so the imagery is that Christ has passed through the first and second heavens, just as the high priest of old would pass through the outer tabernacle, and the holy place. And he has gone into the most holy place, and there he has made atonement as our high priest. But what are the implications of this? The author expands on the same subject in chapter 8 and 9 when he compares the earthly and the heavenly tabernacles and shows how much better Jesus is because of his entering the heavenly holy place. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 say that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And as he goes on to say, this passing through the heavens, this ministering in the true tent, means that the sacrifice that he offered is better, so much better, in fact, that it was able to accomplish all that the previous priesthood could not. He only needed to offer it once to accomplish redemption. 
you see this also in that our high priest has passed through the heavens. It is a past tense, singular action. It was only happened once, but it has continuing effects. It is completed. It is over. And this is a direct implication of his having ministered in the heavenly holy places. See, because Christ entered the perfect heavenly and true tabernacle, he must have had a perfect heavenly and true sacrifice to offer. Jesus entered an infinitely superior tabernacle as an infinite being. And so he was able to make fit sacrifice for the infinite weight of sins that stood against us. He expands on this even more in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, where after describing how everything under the old covenant was purified with the blood of offerings, he says that thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Just a couple of verses later, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It is as though the Aaronic priests were working to build a bridge from man to God. And they were working with a kid's toy plastic workbench. Plastic tools. They had plastic hammers. And they were trying to make this bridge from man to God. But then Christ comes in. He doesn't just have a real tool bench. He has entire factories, entire steel mill. He lays foundations of deep concrete pillars and lays across the steel and opens a way of access to God. When I was very young, I would follow my dad around when he was working on house projects, and I would have plastic tool or toy hammer, and I could bang around on things to my heart's content. Didn't really do much, made a lot of noise. Dad was happy to have me around, and I'm sure I looked cute as uh, dad's little helper. But I didn't actually accomplish anything. And you can sort of think of the Levitical high priests in the same way. You see, they made a lot of noise, they offered a lot of sacrifices, but they didn't actually accomplish anything towards redemption. And just as when you see a little boy with his toy tools, and you know that he is imitating his dad at work, so also, by looking at the little Levitical priests, we can see a picture of Christ's perfect priesthood. And Christ has done this for us who believe. He is our high priest. We have him. Christ has entered into heaven itself, appearing before God on our behalf, and has put away sin by the glorious sacrifice of himself in a glorious heavenly place. So glorious is it that by a single offering it has accomplished all that the thousands of bloody sacrifices offered under the Aaronic priests could not do. Our sins, which placed us at an infinite distance from God, have been atoned for. They have been taken away. And so all this is because our high priest has passed through the heavens, thus offering a perfect sacrifice in a perfect holy place. And so we can be eminently confident in our high priest and hold fast to our confession of him. Our second great motive to draw near to God is also in verse 14. And that is, our high priest is the Son of God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, 
the Son of God. Our high priest is no ordinary man, but he is the all-glorious Almighty One. The author hammers this point home repeatedly throughout the epistle. His identification as the Son of God especially hearkens the reader back to the first several chapters of the book where the author has persuasively established the supremacy of God's Son. Just listen to how the God's Son has already been described, which would have been fresh in the minds of the Hebrews as they first read this epistle. He is superior revelation to all that given by Moses and the prophets through angels. He is the creator of the world. He is of the same nature as God. He is worshipped by angels. His throne is eternal. He is crowned with glory and honor. Everything is in subjection under his feet. He is greater even than Moses, who spoke with God as a man speaks with an intimate friend. And he is greater than Joshua. All of this has been ascribed to God's Son. Now the author is beginning a contrast between Jesus the high priest and the Aaronic high priest, and this will continue throughout the rest of the epistle. What he here puts before us as a further motive to hold fast to our confession and draw near to God is the specific contrast between the Aaronic priests as men and Jesus the high priest as God. Now the primary way that Jesus as God makes him superior to the Aaronic priest is this. Because the Aaronic priests were men, they were sinful, and so they not only needed to make sacrifices for those for whom they mediated, but they needed to offer sacrifices for themselves as well. They were appointed to be the chief mediator, but they themselves were in need of a mediator. They were supposed to bring men to God, but they themselves were men who needed to be brought to God. Even more than a referee who sides with one of the teams, this was actually one of the players on the teams being the referee. It's as though one of the players slipped on a striped shirt and begins officiating the game. And so you can see the problem. And this is the very same problem that Job identified. There is no one who can lay his hand on both God and man. So it here becomes quite obvious how Jesus Christ is superior. Because he is God, is the Son of God, and the Son of God, he is perfect, he is sinless, and so he can come before God and represent us. This was put very clearly in chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Because he is God, he can actually mediate and he can actually intercede. The old Aaronic high priests could not do this. All glorious in splendor, majestic in power, our Lord Christ is exalted as the preeminent high priest. There can be no doubting that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient because he is infinite and he has offered it in a perfect holy place. There can be no doubting that his sacrifice was accepted because he is God's son. To fail to come to God through such an eminent high priest is to disparage the blood of Christ and treat lightly his sacrifice. To not make daily use of him in confessing our sins and applying ourselves to the means that he has established to draw near to him is the height of spiritual sloth and indolence. 
And so we can and must draw near to God because our high priest has served in the supreme tabernacle, thus offering a perfect sacrifice in a perfect holy place, and because he is the Son of God, and thus can actually mediate for us. But next, our author, lest his readers, awed by the greatness of Christ which he has set before them, begin to develop a dread of their high priest, he sets before them this next motive. And truly, if it was not for this next motive, there would be a great difficulty. For as we have said, our, our high priest is God. Thus, he is just as much just, holy, perfect, and righteous as God the Father, and fully as offended by sin. How can we know that God will not cast us off? How can we be certain that after we continue to fail, continue to sin when tempted, even though he's provided us a way of escape, given us everything that we need, how can we be certain that he will not finally say enough and give up on us basket cases? Are we back to the same problem that Jod addressed, that there is no one who can lay his hand on both God and man? Well, the next motive completely destroys all of these objectives, utterly dispels his shut's fears. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because he is God and the Son of God, Jesus can approach the Father to mediate on our behalf. But because he is also man, he is able to sympathize with us and help us. When you are going through some trial or difficulty, there is nothing more helpful than to know that there is someone who has gone through it before, especially if you know them personally someone who's been through the same or similar difficulty. I have a genetic issue with my eyes, and several years ago there were some issues with that. Surgery was required. The lenses inside the eye had dislocated. So we had to go to Utah, and the best surgeon was for that. And there's some uncertainty with that, as there is with all surgeries. But it was comforting to know that my dad and others in my extended family have been through those same issues before me. And so could understand it, and they cared for me. But how much better is Christ? Christ has been through everything. He is perfectly able to sympathize, and even more blessed, he is actually able to help. When we are going through some trial or difficulty, how can this not be, help us? By the word weaknesses, which is what he sympathizes with, is included all of our human frailties and infirmities, getting sick, getting tired. All these Jesus felt during his time on earth. He felt the pain in his stomach of hunger. He felt the dry tongue and the parched mouth of thirst. He had, was without shelter, having nowhere to lay his head. He knew sadness, and he wept at Lazarus' tomb. Throughout the whole course of his life on earth, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. More even than that, Christ knew all of those distractions of the mind that keep our minds on earthly things and prevent us from rising long to thoughts of heavenly matters. Christ knew those distractions too. Even now, you're distracted by the shadows from the lights, all my idiosyncrasies as a speaker. You're distracted by thoughts of what you're going to do when you get home, all the work you need to get done this week. Christ knew all those distractions. He knew all those things that kept us 
from long meditating on heavenly things. He felt the press of the crowds, and he had to fight to have time to pray. With the singular exception of having no internal corruption of sin, Christ has experienced all of our weaknesses. Not only was he weak like us, but he was tempted like we are, and that in every respect or in all things. He was, and there are two primary ways where this works out. First, he was tempted in all things into every sin that we are and in every way that we are. You are tempted to lie, so is Christ. You are tempted to lust, so is Christ. You are tempted to unrighteous anger, so is Christ. You are tempted to complaining and unthankfulness, so is Christ. And on it goes. There is nothing that we have been tempted to that Christ was not also tempted to. And the second way that he was tempted like we are in every respect is that he was tempted to the same or greater degree that we are. I think sometimes we think that because Christ was perfect, his temptations were somehow easier. We think that, oh, well, Christ was perfect. He couldn't sin, so of course he didn't. It was no difficulty. It was not difficult at all for him. But in reality, the opposite is true. Our temptations usually start with the first light motions. Then they grow in intensity until we either give in or on occasion ride it out and escape. But with Christ, he never gave in in the slightest. We're like grasses. We bend at the first little breeze of temptation that comes our way, and so the full force of the wind never blows against us. But Christ was like a great majestic redwood, something large enough to hide a truck behind, never bending even though the gales blow against it, and even then standing firm in temptation. And so he can be a sympathetic high priest. And through all of this, as the text says, he remained without sin. And this also gives us a double comfort, because had he sinned, he no longer would have been a fit sacrifice for us. He would no longer have been the lamb without blemish or spot. He no longer would have been the perfect sacrifice. This would demolish our atonement and leave no way of access to God because whatever the merits of a high priest, if the sacrifice that he offers is not acceptable, his intercession will not be accepted. And so, though Christ had to experience temptations in order to sympathize with us, he could not sin in the process or else all else that he did for our salvation would have been in vain. But he has not sinned, and so our confidence stands firm. There's a second comfort that comes to us through Christ remaining without sin, and that is this. He is able to sympathize still more because his sympathy is a perfect sympathy. He can never become impatient with those for whom he mediates like the high priest of old no doubt did. How many times have you yourself become frustrated with your children or with someone you're trying to disciple? And so you don't pray for them as you ought. You don't treat them as you ought. But Christ is ever sympathetic, even in all of our wanderings. And this mediation is a continuing work. We often think that Christ's work as a priest was finished when he offered his sacrifice on the cross. And to be clear, his work in offering the sacrifice was finished. Complete atonement was made. But his work as a priest extends to far more than that. Christ is even now interceding for the Father. Daily he comes before him on our behalf, asking that the grace and mercy that were made ours through his sacrifice be applied to our lives. How precious is this truth? 
Jesus' work in making sacrifice is finished. It's over. But he himself is continually presenting himself before the Father and interceding for you specifically, for that sin specifically every time you sin. He shows how the definite penalty for your sin was paid for by his sacrifice and is covered in his blood. And in all this, we see how necessary, marvelous, and blessed is the truth of Christ being fully God and fully man. We have briefly seen how throughout the history of redemption, God's people have longed for a mediator, someone to restore humanity to God, someone who, as Job put it, can lay his hand on us both. This was the longing of all the righteous from the fall onwards. But for 4,000 years, there was no one. But now Jesus Christ has been revealed. We have someone who can lay his hand on God, for he is God, and can lay his hand on man, for he is man. He is able to help us, and he is sympathetic because he is man, and he is able to intercede for us because he is God. He is the only one in the universe who is able to do both. Oh, how this ought to drive us to worship. See the wisdom of God displayed in devising this plan. See the beauty of Christ in his person. This should drive us to hold fast to our confession, for it is the only way of access to God. Christ has been united with our nature. What a foundation this lays for our confidence. Ought we not to labor at every means that God has set up to draw near to him and to grow into him? Seeing then that our high priest, though he is glorious and majestic, though he is God himself, is ever able to sympathize with us, no unholy terror of him should remain in our minds. We ought to run to him continually, eagerly, for grace and mercy and the forgiveness of our sins. We draw near to God because our high priest has served in the supreme tabernacle, because he is the Son of God, and because he is sympathetic. Finally, our high priest is the supply of mercy and grace. He is the fountain through which all of God's blessings come to us. It was through the work of the high priests of old that the ancient Israelites expected God to be disposed mercifully toward them and to bless them. And so for us, it is the same. We expect all blessings to come to us from God through Christ. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our receiving of mercy and grace is described as the result of us drawing near to the throne of grace, which we have already shown is the continual presenting of ourselves before God through the means that he has appointed to worship him. And this gives us the capstone reason as to why we are to come to God through Christ. We receive mercy and grace by drawing near to God through Christ and by no other means. Without a mediator, all that we as fallen men can expect from God is wrath. But a high priest, the relative success of a high priest, is based on whether God is disposed mercifully towards those for whom he mediates. Well, how does Christ stack up? Well, we read in the Scriptures that all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places have been given to us in Christ. 
What amazing blessedness that we have with Christ. We have union with His nature. We have union with the body of Christ. We have complete forgiveness of sins. Far more than all the grace and mercy that came to the people of Israel through their high priests, and even infinitely more so, because what came to them only came to them insofar as the work of their priests prefigured what Christ would do on the cross. All spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are ours through Christ. And our receiving of this mercy and grace is not just a one-time event. We don't have a pile of mercy and grace dumped on us in our salvation and then never need any more. No, it continues to come to us, as this text has it, in time of need or at a seasonable time. It is an individual timing of finding of grace specific to each individual time. What blessed sweetness is ours in Christ, beloved? Look and see what your Savior is even now doing for you. Christ is interceding for you. He sees your diverse needs in the exact times they come in. He sympathizes with you. And when you apply yourself to Him, He gives out to you exactly the grace and mercy that you need at that time. We can be eminently confident in His priesthood because He has served in the supreme tabernacle, He is the Son of God, and He is the supply of mercy and grace. When faced with such tenderness and compassion, how can we not respond to God with overflows of love and devotion and come to Him at all times and everything? Oh, how despicable the very thought of sinning becomes when once you grasp this truth. The perfect sacrifice in the perfect holy place has been made, completely doing away with all our sin. God's throne is now towards us, overflowing with mercy and grace. He has built a secure bridge to God, not with plastic tools, toy hammers, but with the concrete and steel of His precious blood. And when we draw near to God through Christ, using the Scripture, through the preaching of the Word and our own study of it, through prayer and petition for us and for others, through the edification of the local church, discipling and being discipled, and through communion and baptism, then we draw near to God and receive those blessings of grace and mercy through Him. Dear Christian, run to God through Christ and you will find grace. Apply yourself diligently to the Word. Receive the ordinances with a sincere heart and thanksgiving. Be earnest in prayer. But if you are not in Christ, you are remain without a mediator before a holy God. You have heard the truth of the greatness of Christ declared to you. Do not neglect to come to Him and turn from your, from your sins and to Him for salvation. If you place the slightest ounce of confidence in your own righteousness for your salvation, to you, God's throne is not a throne of grace, but it is a throne of wrath and terror of sure destruction and eternal punishment. To you belongs the sober warning of Hebrews 10, verses 26 and through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment in the fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone 
who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has spurned the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So I urge you to strive to enter his rest. A door of mercy yet remains open for you. Those hands of the living God which even now stand poised to cast you into eternal judgment will even now receive you in love if you turn from your sins and turn to Christ to receive salvation. And all the blessings of union with Christ will be yours eternally. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we have seen just a little of the greatness of Christ, the greatness of His priesthood. Thank You, Lord, for giving Him to us as a mediator, someone to bring us to God. For in truth, we were utterly separated for You. There is no one to bring us to You. But, oh, Lord, You have given us Christ. Thank You. Help us to walk worthy of our confession. Help us to grow in our love to You. Help us to continue to draw near to You and to not become slothful. Oh Lord, for those here who have not yet placed their full confidence in Christ, oh Lord, save them. Do not let them perish eternally. Oh Lord, open their hearts, open their eyes that they may see Your truth. We ask these things in your name. Amen.